Good morning. By how, how does, he said uh, in that prayer, um, by your word we know him. By his word we know something like that. But that's that's important. That's an important thought. The word. That's how we get to know who Jesus is. And um, the message today is um, is a little deeper. It's uh, we're going to dig a little bit, and I know this church appreciates that. So I feel very comfortable here, and I know I can just dig, and we can talk about church history and uh, about this subject. It's, uh, the title today is The Trinitarian Controversy. Jesus Christ, was he created, which many still believe today. He's a created being, or is he, in fact, the creator? So let's talk about that, and I want to start it off with, with a quote from John Stone Street over at Breakpoint. He said, These four things are true. Christ is risen, Christ is Lord, Christ will restore all things, and we are called to this time and place in history, you and I. So those four things are true no matter who you are, no matter where you live, those four things are always true. So we know and believe Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord, and our faith is based upon not only his finished work on the cross, but his divinity and humanity, the God-man. Our hope today is that we will all have more, a, a deeper understanding of this, what this means, and that we can build on the foundation we already have in Christ as God. For example, um, Colossians 2.9. You can turn there. We'll just be there for a minute, but we will be in Colossians 1 a little bit later. In fact, if you're taking notes, I'll give you a couple other places we'll be visiting. Um, John chapter 1, Colossians 1. Um, let's see. The main content of today's message is in Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we'll end up with a few verses in Revelation but a lot to get to. So let's get right to this verse in Colossians 2.9. For in him, now Paul's writing about Christ, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You can take that at face value, but let's dig a little deeper. Let's take a look at three words. And why do you think Paul chose to word it this way? In Christ, in him, not only did he say Deity dwells in bodily form, so God dwells in the form of Jesus, right? But before that, he says fullness, the fullness of deity. That fullness is from the Greek word pleroma. And uh, it, further, the verse adds before that, though, all fullness. So Paul's really wanting to communicate a point here. For in Christ, all not some, not a little bit of deity, which some believed at that time in the first couple centuries, that there were other gods. Jesus had some deity and others had some deity. No, all the fullness of God, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Jesus was 100% God, not 99.44% God, which we'll get to in a minute. All divine powers and attributes are found in Christ alone. Why? Did Paul add bodily form? Well, if you look at the verse right before Colossians 2.9, 2.8, he said, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So, he was warning about the dangers of the traditions of men, the elementary teachings. He's warning about philosophies, empty deception, not just deception, but there was deception that would leave you completely empty spiritually and eternally. So he was refuting philosophy um, in Greek philosophical thought. At that time, remember, this is uh, the context we're talking about where Paul was writing to the Philippians. He was writing... Um, or I'm sorry, the Colossians in this, in this case, to Greeks, matter, physical, matter was evil, spirit was good. So to the thought, the thought to them of God 
coming down in human flesh. It was unthinkable, the concept. Matter was evil. Everything was, we are evil. Everything on this earth is evil. Spirit things are good. So they could not wrap their minds around this concept. So that's Greek philosophical thought. So see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. So all the fullness dwelt in Christ. Um, He did lower himself to take on humanity. And the more of Jesus and his word we can get in us, the more full we will be of Christ and his truth. Because we know Jesus said, your word is truth, when he prayed to the Father in John 17. So then what does it mean to worship Jesus as God? What did it mean to the early Christian church? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Who is the word, capital W, prior to the word's relationship with the Father? Why is this doctrine to the Christian faith so vital? If Jesus was not both God and man, the gospel is compromised. But what a mystery. So let's look at the word doctrine. It comes from the Latin word doctrina, means teaching. Doctrine is not something extra that those who were the successors to the apostles decided to add to their beliefs. Doctrine was not added by bishops in the early uh, church age to give them something important to do. No, doctrine is a foundational belief and understanding of what this gospel is and who Jesus is. Let's jump over to John, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, capital W. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, so we don't need to dig into this as much as we will other scriptures. It's very clear in different translations, it pretty much says the same thing. Jesus pre-existed with the Father. And then it, it says, all things came into being through him. So he's saying, wow, not only did he pre-exist, he was the creator, as we'll get to in Colossians chapter 1. And apart from him, nothing came into, into being that has come into being. So now let's jump down to verse 14 in John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Remember who wrote this? John, who witnessed Jesus' life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, along with hundreds and hundreds of others who were eyewitnesses of his glory, his, the resurrected Christ. So we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father. We're going to talk about that because in this context, the meaning of the original word is a little different. The only begotten can be uh, the only beloved or having unique prominence. The only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why is that important? Wasn't Jesus the perfect balance of truth and grace, wasn't he? Full of grace and full of truth. What do we have in American Christianity today? We've got about 75% grace and 25% truth. It may be 80, 20. But you know what I mean. There's a lot of grace, but we're lacking a little bit in the truth. If you have all grace and no truth, that's not what Jesus set as an example. It's not who he is and not who our doctrine, not what our doctrine teaches. And if you have all truth and no grace, then that's not balanced either. So it's just an important point there from Jesus being full of grace and truth. And yet in the Old Testament, don't turn there because we're going to just keep moving here. Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Okay, we can kind of grasp that. The Lord is one. There are many gods, many religions, small g gods at that time, many different gods, pagan gods. But the Lord is one. The Lord is our God. The Lord is God. John 10, 20. Jesus was talking, I believe, to the Pharisees. You remember he said, I and the Father are one. So you've got in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And Jesus, in John 10, 30, says, I and the Father are one. These are things you've got to grapple with if you're going to come to a conclusion about 
who we worship as God and who Jesus is. So some thought the idea of, of uh, Christ as Son, capital S, and God compromised the integrity of the Trinity. And some still believe that today. So there was, in the first couple of centuries of the early church, we're going to talk a little bit about some church history here before we get really in to the heart of this message today. There was much wrangling over words and how to define things, and it had to be done in the first, uh, probably the first uh, two, three hundred centuries of Christianity. So if Jesus is not fully God and fully divine, Christianity crumbles. This is why the early church successors struggled to define this gospel, to define this and understand who God is and the deity of Christ. Today, just like in those days, mockers, mockers will say, well, Jesus never existed or come on. I mean, you've got to talk about those things with some people that don't believe, but you can't spend a whole lot of time there because they're just foolish. Historians outside the Bible, like Josephus and Tacitus, they wrote about Jesus Christ and about events at that time. So if Jesus never existed because they don't be, believe the Bible, that's what they're saying, I don't believe the Bible, so Jesus never existed. Well, what about these, these other historians that wrote about Jesus? Were they making it up too? They were anti-Christian. They, they were Jewish and they were so just historians. So anyway, let's, let's move on from that thought. So some today insist he was, he was a man, Jesus was a man. Now, a good man, perhaps, maybe a good teacher, but if he said he was God, I and the Father are one, would a good teacher lie? So you can't call him a good teacher if he didn't tell the truth. So the third and fourth century Trinitarian controversy focused on the mystery of the incarnation and the relationship between the Father and the Son, both who, they were both called God at that time by Christian monotheists. Now, what does it mean regarding the divine nature that the Son had taken on flesh, died, and was raised for the sake of humanity? That's what we celebrate every Sunday. In fact, every time we take communion, we celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection and until he comes again, when, and whenever there's communion. So, in these early centuries, there was a historical moment of intense struggle in church history to establish a common language by which to state the doctrine of faith without distortion and in a manner that would do justice to the God of Christian worship. Now, a couple people I want to introduce here before we get back to, I think we're going to jump over to um, uh, Philippians eventually, but um, Alexander, he was a bishop of Alexandria, and he understood that Jesus and God the Father, Jesus and God the Father were equal. He understood that. He believed that. He's one of the early bishops. And when you hear bishop, don't think about today, Catholic bishops. Think about the early bishops who were trying to carry on what the apostles handed down as far as doctrines and teachings, okay? Uh, deacons, elders, that kind of uh, thought of uh, bishop. So um, he, he believed that they were God, though separate persons, and he believed Jesus was always God, as we just read in the Gospel of John. He existed with the Father before he was made flesh, and that there was never a time that Jesus did not exist. So in the early 4th century church, the heresy of Arianism was starting to poison the well of sound teaching. And some disagreement arose about the nature of Christ's divinity and humanity, as there is today. There's disagreement about his divinity and humanity. So two key figures were instrumental to church history for two different reasons now. One was a defender of the faith and the true doctrine. One was trying to introduce the heresy of Arianism. So what was his name? Arius. Arianism. Arius. He was a priest, a teacher claiming that Jesus was a lesser divinity. He had some divinity, but he was a lesser divinity, Arius would say. That there was a time that Jesus did not exist with the Father. In fact, one of the teachings, I can paraphrase it, goes something like this. There was once when he was not. There was once when he was not. In other words, there was a time that Jesus did not exist. He was created. But that's a false teaching. Um, he believed that Jesus was exalted to his high position because of his obedience to God in redeeming man. Now, Arius argued the supremacy of God the Father and that the Son had a beginning. And we're going to get to this very important word used different ways, firstborn. 
We're going to dig into that in a little bit too, just really explain all this. Present day Jehovah's Witnesses hold some of these teachings, right? Um, the same position as Arius. And in some ways, Arian beliefs underlie Mormon or LDS teachings about Christ as well. So the next person we need to get to know who really helped, and, and if you want to look up information on him later, uh, in fact, let me give you a couple, if you're taking notes. Um, the Trinitarian Controversy, translated by William Rush, and the Christological or Christological Controversy. Chapter 6 is about Athanasius, and it's called Orations Against the Arians. Orations Against the Arians. If you miss any of that, I'll, I'll give it to you after. Very important. So Athanasius, who was he? He was much younger. He was a Christian theologian, a church father, a chief defender of Trinitarianism against Arianism. He served Bishop Alexander, and after uh, three years after the Council of Nicaea, which we're going to talk about, Athanasius succeeded his mentor as and became Archbishop of Alexandria. Now, nearly all of his works come from after the Council of Nicaea, which was interesting. So he didn't play a, a key role, but he was serving one of the bishops, Alexander, that was in that council of bishops that made this decision about doctrine. Um, what else here? There were some that were claiming to be Christian, and they didn't believe Jesus is Lord and God, as we have today, believe it or not. In America, there are some, they would profess to be Christian, but they don't believe Jesus is the way, the truth, the life and the only way to the Father. So these church leaders in the early days, they had to meet and kind of hash out this controversial issue and define this so we could have that foundation settled and build on that. So we also read, there weren't many church councils in the early days. We read about one in the book of Acts, chapter 15, where um, it was James in the early church, uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the Jerusalem council. They concluded that, um, the Gentiles didn't have to follow uh, circumcision and be burdened with the law because we know Jesus came not to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. So there was another council or two, but Nicaea was unique in that it was organized by Constantine when he was allegedly converted. Right? Very interesting history there. And his attempt was to bring together all the leaders, the church leaders at that time, the bishops and the, the deacons, and bring them all together, kind of get them into the room, feed them, and say, don't come out until you get to the bottom of this. So I kind of give you a little bit of history the way I kind of see it. Um, but that's what happened. So he organized this. And these were bishops from all the different parts of the world at that time. So this was not a regional council then. This was something that would attempt a universal answer to a theological issue. So the council met, they heard the claims of both Arius and Alexander, and to be honest, some of the council's deliberations were spent trying to understand exactly what it was that Arius was teaching, because many of them from different parts of the world didn't know of the heresy. They didn't quite understand where he was getting his teaching that Jesus was created. So in the end, and I'll go to the, the end of here, we'll read what they came up with. The bishops were nearly unanimous. It was a landslide. There was something like 300 uh, bishops present, and it was like 300 to 2 if they were to take a vote. So only a couple defended the false teaching that Jesus was a created being and not preexistent with the Father. So it was unanimous. So we got our foundation there. And this was to define and, and better affirm what the apostles taught and handed down. Um, it was like a hammer, though, that decision. 300 to 2? And there may have been 320 bishops, there may have been 280 bishops, but some historians will tell you there were around 300. But they all agree that it was a unanimous decision okay, on this doctrine. So the council concluded, the Son, S-O-N, capital S-O-N, was begotten, not made, not created, okay, and one of being with the Father. So here's a word that came out of this. The Nicene Creed introduced a Greek word that was, did not appear in the New Testament at that time, but helped explain this mystery. And I heard this word, and I go, wow, the, I, I love it. It's, it's called homoousius. Homoousius. It means of the same substance. And the Catholic Church has now brought that into their uh, creed that they recite, um, I believe every week still. Uh, they use the word consubstantial. 
they change that now. Instead of one in being with the Father, when they're talking about Jesus, they say consubstantial with the Father. I don't know why they changed it back. But the Nicene Creed states this relationship of the pre-existent Christ uh, to the Father in this way. God of God, same substance, light of light, very God of very God, and then begotten, not made. Um, so being of one substance, homoousius, it's like a, a, a butter. If you take um, like a big uh, a canister, a big thing of butter, right? If you take a slice of that and put that over here, that's still the same substance as that, that big slab of butter. So not to say that God is butter. So no, we're not introducing a false teaching here. But just the idea of the same stuff, the same substance. Jesus is the same substance as God. So homoousius with the Father. Now let's look at the Nicene Creed. I have it on the screen, but it's, I'm going to read a slightly different version because you can look this up on the internet and get, get a copy of this. This is the, one of the original um, creeds that came out of the Synod of Nicaea in June 19, 325 AD. So when the bishops came together, this is what they came out with to defend the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, we believe in one God, Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things, seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, as only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, homoousius with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth, who because of us man and our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered and arose on the third day. Now they add, of course, soon after they added, suffered, died, and was buried. Because that's important. Jesus did physically die. Suffered and arose on the third day, ascended into heaven, comes to judge or returns to judge the living and the dead, and in one Holy Spirit. And here's what they, you don't see this in the modern versions, but here's a direct rebuttal of Arius. And those who say there was once when he was not, or he was not before he was begotten, or he came into existence from nothing, or those who affirm that the Son of God is of another hypostasis or substance, or a creature, or mutable or subject to change, such ones the Catholic and Apostolic Church pronounces accursed and separated from the true church. So they really did go into detail to rebut that. And that's what came out of this Council of Nicaea in 325, which is very important as our foundation. Um, one word about the, the word Catholic, and that's not with the Roman Catholic Church today. That Catholic was a small c, and the word basically means universal, okay? So at that time, it wasn't the Roman Catholic Church. They were saying the Catholic Church, you know, how was it worded? Um, um, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, the Catholics still recite this, and I'm sure they would probably put a capital C in there, meaning Roman Catholic. But at that time, it just simply meant we believe in one universal church that stands on this creed of the deity of Christ. Okay? Now, um, what does it mean to beget? So we'll get into this. Beget, begotten. Flip over to John chapter 3, very familiar verses, 16 through 18, and we'll have them on the screen. Thank you. Assuming most of you are there or close to getting there, you know your, your navigation in, in the Word of God. So, for God so loved the world, and I appreciate that worship song you guys did this morning, he loves us. How he loves us. That word so, and this is kind of a little trickle off the message for a moment because that worship song made me think about this. God so loved the world. We just kind of throw that around, but that means something. That word so means something. How much he loved this world in this way. For God so, for God 
in this way. So loved the world, he sacrificed his son. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. If you stop there, people make this argument today. God, you, don't, you shouldn't judge. Judge ye not. God didn't send Jesus to judge the world. They'll stop right there. But read verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. Whew. For those of us who believe in him. But what's, what does it say? This doesn't stop there. It says, he who does not believe has been judged already by the word because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus was not, or Jesus was the only one to be born of God, of the same essence or substance. Now the word in the New Testament, I believe in John chapter, 1 John 5, says we are, if you believe in him, you are born of God. That doesn't the words are not the same in the original text in the Greek, meaning when, when it's talking about Jesus being begotten or born of God, same substance, it does not use that same meaning for human beings who are born of God because we believe. Does that make sense? I just want to clarify. Um, so let's discuss the meaning of being firstborn or first begotten because it's important to our understanding. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the first child to be born was given special privileges and honor, a uh, double portion of the inheritance, okay? However, one could be chosen to be elevated to the level of firstborn in, in what was called a royal grant covenant. David, King David, he was the youngest, but he's referred to as the firstborn among kings, he certainly wasn't the oldest or the firstborn to his father, Jesse. So it's a different meaning of that word, firstborn. So he was not the oldest. He was not first chronologically. Now, the Greek word there, prototokos, translated as firstborn, can refer to the order, in order, or chronological, such as firstborn child. Or it can refer to someone who is a higher rank or preeminent. And that is the context when it refers to Jesus as firstborn, preeminent. Now, turn to Colossians chapter 1 and keep a marker there because we're going to start there, move away, and come back to Colossians 1 before we get to Philippians 2. I know we're going through a lot of scriptures today, but this is going to really solidify this issue, this understanding for us on the Trinitarian controversy. So Colossians 1.15 Paul writes referring to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Stop right there, though. Think about image, and then think about invisible. It doesn't seem to go together, does it? God is invisible, but he, Jesus is the image? So Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. The image of what we cannot see, we can see in Jesus. He's the image of God who we cannot see. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, Hebrews 1.3, if you're taking notes, it says Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, God's nature. So it's not just a representation of God. Jesus is the exact representation, the image. And in John 14.9, remember when Jesus said, I'm, I'm sorry, when Philip said to Jesus, um, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Remember how Jesus responded. If you have seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Get that through your head. I've been with you a couple years now. All right? So even the disciples who lived with him had a hard time grasping this. Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And before Abraham was born, I am Jesus said to the disciples when they, they knew what he was saying because they wanted to kill him after he said that. So they knew exactly what he was claiming. So now, Acts 13, 33 and 34 states this. So Jesus is given preeminence. It says, God has fulfilled this promise. Okay, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. That's the promise. 
As it is also written in the second Psalm, we're in Acts 13, 33, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, King David. Now, what, what does that all mean? What are these blessings promised to the king? We need to go to another verse of scripture in Psalm 89. I believe we have that up here too. I hope you're writing some of these down because I know you can't flip to all these. I'm not sure if we have 89. Psalm 89, verses 27 through 29. These blessings. So because Jesus came in that line, the descendant of David, but yet he created the world and he created David, Jesse, and all, all mankind. So this is very interesting. Psalm 89 27 through 29 says this, I also shall make him, David, my firstborn. Why not? Because David is firstborn. The highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him forever. So I will establish his descendants, King David's descendants, Forever, that word descendants means his seed, his seed, and his throne as the days of heaven. So an eternal throne, how could David have an eternal throne when it goes on in here and in Hebrews and other places, David died and his bones are buried. It clearly states that David died, he's not eternal. So how could he establish his descendants forever and his throne it's Christ who came through that line, the line of David. The Messiah would come. That was the Davidic covenant. Now back to Colossians 1. Hope you kept your hand in there. We'll continue in Colossians 1, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. It says, verse 16, because we read 15. I gotta get, just got to look at the time here. Okay. For by him all things were created, both in heavens, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have create, been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, preexistent. Okay? And in him all things hold together. He sustains all things. Jesus Christ is creator, so he could not possibly have been the first thing created or firstborn in the light of some the basic understanding of firstborn well that must be my oldest firstborn we just established the fact that that context is not always used for the oldest it's sometimes used for the youngest like david i think ephraim and i think a few others so it means prominence not necessarily birth order firstborn so he's before all things in him all things hold together verse 18 he's the head of the body in the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, and that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For, here's that word again coming up, pleroma, fullness. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness. Again, all, right? As if fullness weren't enough. All the fullness to dwell in him. So firstborn from the dead, first to be glorified. Firstborn is used uh, begotten of the Father, and then firstborn from the dead, which is used here in verse 18. So there's first begotten, firstborn, first beloved, and then there's firstborn, and they add, from the dead. So Jesus was the first to be resurrected eternally. Now Lazarus was, of course, resurrected. So we said, well, Lazarus was kind of firstborn. No, 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 he died again, okay? So firstborn from the dead, glorified, came back from the dead, never to die again, resurrected to eternal life. And this is our hope. That's the hope that Christ fulfilled. So we already mentioned pleroma, fullness. Um, so now let's go to the, the greatest hymn, the hymn of hymns in Philippians chapter 2. And I'm not sure how far we'll get, but we'll see what we can do. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now, this was considered a great hymn of the early church. That many of them, in fact, most of them probably had it memorized because it was one of those hymns that they had. They knew that, like the back of their hand. Um, next to creation, create, that's, you can imagine creating everything from nothing. Next to creation, the incarnation is, is the central miracle of Christianity, the most grand and wonderful of all things God has ever done. So the mystery of this 
miracle, the word becoming flesh, is the theme of some of these verses here in this hymn in Philippians. And uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, talks about the example of the Lord Jesus is set before us. And this is hard, you guys, because it states two natures of Christ, divine nature and human nature, but it also states if Christ is our example, and Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, his humiliation or humility and then his exaltation, but that humility, that's hard for me. I don't know about you. Um, it's hard to be think of that having that servant mind, and that, but that's what this verse will tell us to do, the very first verse here. Um, think about this, though. Christ not only took upon him the likeness or, uh, and fashion or form of a man, not only mankind, so he lowered himself, right? But he went even lower to be on a cross with criminals. Okay, the lowest step was his dying the death of the cross, exposed to public hatred and scorn. The exaltation was of Christ's human nature, not the divine. Christ could not be God again. He could not be more exalted because he was already God. Um, Let's just go to the hymn. Um, Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, have this attitude. Now, what it's going to say, for those of you who are familiar with these verses, so let this mind be in you, or have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what attitude? Well, here it is. Who, although he existed in the form of God, substance of God, and with God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. I know there are different translations on that word, but emptied himself, humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul begins this great hymn of encouragement saying, have the mind of Christ. (laughs) So, all right, that's kind of putting the standard up here already. Um, But the incarnation calls believers to follow Jesus' example of humility, self-denial, self-giving, self-sacrifice, and selfless love as he lived in obedient submission to the Father's will. And though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It's all too easy for us to understand this description and, and read this without really being in awe by this section. So we can't really do it justice in just this short time on Sunday morning. But God really wants us to be awed by what this just communicated to us about who Jesus is and what he did willingly. God so loved us. He sacrificed himself. He became man and the lowest of men to be crucified on the cross. Um, This attitude or mind is something that God can give us In fact, he has. If you read 1 Corinthians 2.16, it says, we have the mind of Christ. Thank God for the Holy Spirit, right? So we must have the capacity to have servants' hearts and have this mind of humility. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, have this same attitude. Now, he existed in the form of God. This clearly describes Jesus existing prior to becoming man. He did not begin his existence in the manger in Bethlehem, which will celebrate his birth He did not begin there. He was God and entered our existence. Okay? Um, Let's see. The Lord's possession of the divine essence. Okay, that's a good one. Good point. I get a couple notes from Bible commentaries. The Lord's possession of the divine essence or substance did not cease to be a fact when he came to earth to assume human form. Um, The form... Uh, that, that's the word morph, M-O-R-P-H-E, or morph or morphe. Uh, the word means the essential form which never alters. In other words, God has a form, and Jesus Christ exists in the form of God. 
Another translation, yours might say, in the very nature of God, form of God, nature of God. So he emptied himself, emptied, kenosis, uh, the idea that Jesus' incarnation was a self, a willing emptying of his privileges. There's a little reminder that I've got (laughs) this much time to go. Um, From the ancient Greek Greek word kenosis, emptied. He emptied himself, get this now, understand this, of his privileges, not his deity. All right, he emptied himself of his privileges or position for a time, not his deity. He did not lose divine attributes, but renounced his rights to them. Attributes, um, omniscience, um, uh, omnipotence, omnipresence. Jesus did not and could not become less God. The crude way of thinking about this is Jesus added humanity to his resume. Okay, God came to earth and said, all right, the stellar resume I'm going to add, human form, humanity. Okay? He humbled himself. Obedience. He became obedient. This was an interesting point I got out of this study. Jesus could not become obedient when he was in heaven. He was God and is God. He had to come to earth as a man to learn obedience, which is really interesting what this, this uh, verse talks about. He became obedient And he could only do that as a man. So when God sits enthroned in heaven's glory, there is no one he obeys, right? Jesus had to leave heaven's glory to become obedient. Now, one key, of course, was the endurance of suffering, which we don't have time to get into, but Hebrews 5.8 says, 5.8 Hebrews, though he was a son, capital S, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Wow, that's, wrap your mind around that. God, in the flesh, learning obedience. <laughs> All right, uh, if you want to write down this, uh, we don't have time to, to get into this, but Isaiah 53, the suffering servant in that passage will take you to a whole other level of depth when you talk about this issue. And one verse, though, Isaiah 53, 12, says, he poured out himself to death. Remember the substance of butter we talked about? Think about he's pouring out this butter and then to death. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man. This this describes how Jesus emptied himself. Taking uh, does not imply an exchange. In other words, I'll take on humanity and exchange my deity for that. Again, his deity remains the same. So it was an exchange, not... I'm sorry, it was not in exchange, an addition. He took, took on flesh. All right, um, skip uh, down a little bit to uh, in verse 8. Crucifixion. Talk about lowering, lowering himself. Crucifixion was such a shameful death. It, not permitted, by the way, for Roman citizens, such as the people of Philippi, which Paul was writing from Rome in the prison to the Philippians in this passage uh, that we're reading in Philippians 2, he was writing from prison. A a Roman citizen could not be uh, crucified. So a victim of crucifixion was considered by the Jews to be cursed by God. And the death of the cross was the bottom rung of the ladder from the throne of God. I like the way that visualized that. From the highest of heaven and the throne of God, Jesus became man, came to earth, and then the bottom rung of the ladder. That's what the, the crucifixion. He came all the way down to the most painful, despised death of all. And the cross shows that there's no limit to what God will do to demonstrate his love and saving power to man. It's the ultimate. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. He said, blessed be his name. He stoops, he stoops, and stoops, and stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes man, he still stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. Isn't that a good picture of what? The the humiliation. Um, Now, let's get to the exaltation part. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, Because of what happened, because of what Jesus just went through and did, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now, highly exalted. He could have just said, God exalted Jesus. But he said, highly. This is an interesting word too. It it could also be translated super exalted, if there can be such a thing. Super exalted. Um, Highly, super, to the highest place, one translation says. Um, It's the Greek word hyperipsu to raise to a high point of honor or to raise someone to the loftiest height. Now, he's referring, obviously, to the resurrection from the dead, Christ's resurrection, but even more to his ascension, where God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, as it says in Acts 5.31. So there is no higher name than Yahweh, and Jesus has that name. Um, Part of Christ's exaltation is God giving to him that name. Jesus is Lord. That name, to the glory of God the Father. We'll get to that in a second. But two possibilities. Yahweh saves. The name of Jesus could be translated Yahweh saves. And um, in the name of Jesus Christ... That's used often with power for baptism by the early disciples. They used that in the name of Jesus Christ. We heard Peter in the, in the book of Acts use that. Um, what about Lord? The name Jesus, the name Lord. What it means when every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord is that Jesus, the Messiah, is Yahweh, God himself. So that Jesus is Lord. The Hebrew word Adonai or Adonai, Lord, was used in the Jewish reading of the scriptures. Thus, Lord became equivalent to God himself. So to declare Jesus Lord is giving him the same level of worship as God the Father. So very clear in just some of the scriptures we read so far, the Colossians and John 1 and here, and the name which belongs to Jesus, at the name of Jesus, the divine title of Lord. Um, So now let's talk about what that means, though. Verse 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? Every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord, and it will glorify God to the glory of God the Father. So when will they bow? Well, when the Antichrist is dethroned. This means people that don't believe now, they will still bow. Understand, every knee will bow. Every means every, all. Every knee, every tongue not just those who believe. We've already bowed, right? We've already worshiped him as God. But here's something I picked up, a really neat phrase. It says, to bow before him now means salvation. To bow before him later when you're forced to means condemnation. And that's what we have in the world, those who don't believe. They will stand condemned. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul does not imply by this, of course, that it's a universal salvation and everyone's going to heaven. Okay? No, he does not. Uh, We confess Christ's lordship either with joyful faith, which we do in this body. Joyful faith, we confess his lordship. Jesus is Lord or with resentment and rebellion and despair, they will be forced to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Praise God. Praise God we're on the side that confess him now and worship him and honor him and revere his name now. Those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, this conveys the absolute totality of all creation recognizing the superiority of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And it draws on uh, Paul, what Paul's pulling here from is Isaiah 45, 23, which was written uh, six, 700 years before Christ. It says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow Every tongue shall take an oath. That's what Paul drew from here as part of this hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Yahweh. In Philippians, it is to Jesus, uh, showing that Jesus is Yahweh. 
Um, now, those under the earth, it's, you might be going, what, what does that mean? Well, either the dead um, who are hid in the earth shall be raised by the power of Christ, and devils it could mean. It could mean wicked souls. And the idea of every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, isn't that interesting? It's a combination of complete submission. Bowing is an action. Confessing is with your mouth. So that's complete submission, word and deed. So the total recognition of Jesus' deity and exaltation has caused many to envision this happening as in a formal way after the final judgment. But make no mistake that that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, I didn't think I would get through this, but I did. <laughs> I went a little fast. Yeah, wow, I skipped over some things, and I'll, I'll put this together eventually in a document because I think it's so important, this Trinitarian controversy. is no longer a controversy because Jesus is Lord. There is a sense that when Jesus returned to heaven, this is just some speculation on commentaries, that when he did return to heaven, when he ascended, that he took more with him that he had. In other words, his humanity, right? He didn't remove his humanity when he went to heaven. Although he's God, he just took that part of his resume and kept it when he ascended to the Father. It's an interesting thought. Um, so also, here's one interesting thing he also went to heaven with when he was ascended, right? He returned to heaven with the recognition among mankind of who he was and the worship he truly deserved as God. That's what Jesus, something unknown, something really they grappled with until the incarnation, the word became flesh, they grappled with that, but the full revelation of his person and work ascended. Now let's wrap this up in a beautiful package and put a bow on it. All right, let's go to Revelation, the book of Revelation. We've got a couple scriptures there and we're done. Uh, we'll start uh, Revelation 1, and then we'll, we'll basically the beginning and the end, which is interesting. That's what Jesus says. So Revelation 1, verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the resurrected, ascended Christ, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins, how? By his blood, by stooping and lowering himself below us to a criminal who died a brutal death. He released us to redeem us. There is only one who is the first begotten of the Father, only begotten of the Father, and firstborn of the dead. And since he is, as he said in John 11, I believe, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, we have that promise. That's the promise that was talked about, I believe, in Psalm 89, we referred to earlier. We have that promise, and we will be raised or born of the dead. And the Bible says, guess what? We will be like him in glory. These are some amazing promises. Revelation 1.8, a few verses down, it says, there it is, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Check this out. Who is and who was and who is to come to return? The Almighty. So notice Jesus is often described in this sense of past, present, future. Who was who is and is to come, pre-existent with the Father, present with us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to return one day, and we will share glory with him. Praise God. Now, go to the very back of Revelation, uh, chapter 22, for one more, two more verses, <laughs> and then we're done. <laughs> Revelation 22, 12 and 13 Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Now a little gem. I want to leave you this in verse 16. Go a couple verses down in verse 16. He said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to John, who is writing down this from Jesus. I have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. Remember we talked about that line of David? A descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Here's the gem for this verse. The root. That means source. So Jesus is saying, remember he said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Here he says, I am the root, the source. But look at that, and I am the root and the descendant of David. How could this be, right? I am the source, preexistent with the Father, the source of all things, the creator of all things, and sustainer of all things, the source and the descendant of David. He came through David's line to fulfill the messianic prophecy. The root and the source. Now these verses provide more important underpinnings to our understanding of the Trinity and of Christ as God. Um, let me just look real quick at this. Um, see if I explain that right. Because there's a, a, a note here in my study Bible. So yes, let me just read this to you. Um, Christ is the source of David's... Let me let's see, make sure I got that right. Uh, the source of David's life and David's line of descendants which establishes Christ's deity. He is also a descendant of David, which establishes his humanity. This phrase gives powerful testimony to Christ as the God-man, fully God and fully man. I want to leave you with a quote. I know we covered a lot, we went through this, but understand the early church grappled with this, this Trinitarian controversy and the mystery of Christ, which it says in the end of Colossians, I believe 127, that tells you what the mystery is, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and we will be glorified with him, that Christ, how does he live in us? Through his Holy Spirit to those who receive him. Um, Alexander McLaren said, in Christ, as a great storehouse, lie all the riches of spiritual wisdom, the massive ingots of solid gold, which, when coined into creeds and doctrines, are the wealth of the church. All which we can know concerning God and man, concerning sin and righteousness and duty, concerning another life, all we can know is in him who is the home and deep mine where truth is stored. The central fact of the universe and the perfect encyclopedia of all moral and spiritual truth is in Christ, the incarnate word, the lamb slain, the ascended king. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that we can stand on and have this solid anchor, that hope that we have in you and your word is an anchor to our soul. No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what will happen in our lives or in the future, we can rely on you that your word is trustworthy and true because you are the truth. And we praise you, Jesus, for not leaving us helpless or hopeless, but for sending your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, for giving us everything we need for life and for godliness. And we pray, even though we went through a lot in your word today, God, we pray for even a greater understanding of who you are and that you would allow us to grow even more in the grace and knowledge of the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that there's no more debate. We thank you that there's no more controversy. We thank you that we know and understand these things, and we pray that you would use us to communicate these truths 
to a dying world that has no hope. And when they lose a loved one, they grieve because they have no hope in eternal salvation. But we thank you for humbling yourself, for the humiliation you went through as man, lowering yourself, stooping so low to the bottom rung of the ladder of humanity and dying on a cross. We praise you for that masterful, foreordained plan with which you saved mankind. And we believe and we trust in you in all things. Give us a greater love for your word. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may not only see more of you as we read your word and understand your love for us, but also your love for a dying world, those people in our sphere of influence that we can share your truth with as they come across our path. God, put those people in our lives and help us be obedient and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And we trust you. We can't explain all things. We don't have all the answers, but we trust you, Holy Spirit, to lead us in these conversations that we may use the days that we have to be witnesses for you, faithful servants, and with greater appreciation of the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and full of truth. Help us to have that balance in our lives. We praise you, Jesus. We exalt you, O God, Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.